0: listening to The Futures Podcast, with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to science journalist Zaya Tong.
1: When you're inside of a bubble, it's like you're inhabiting a fiction, a fictional bubble. And there's a much bigger picture of reality out there, and if you're not paying attention to it, it'll sort of crash its way in.
0: Zaya shared her insights into the hidden worlds that exist beyond the limits of the human senses, how illusion contributes to our understanding of reality, and how our collective blind spots are at the core of the current environmental crisis. This episode was recorded in person before the outbreak of coronavirus, while Saya was in London promoting her book, The Reality Bubble. You can view a full video version of this conversation at futurespodcast.net. Zaya Tong, in your new book, The Reality Bubble, you share the hidden truths about the world around us. And more importantly, you show us how reality operates beyond what's perceived by the human senses. Uh, it's a truly weird, it's a truly wonderful, <laughs> and it's a truly eye-widening book. But what is The Reality Bubble?
1: Okay. So it's the first question people tend to ask me, but I know that people are familiar with, say, real estate bubbles or stock market bubbles, tech bubbles. We know that when we're inhabiting a bubble, it's a dangerous place to be. It may feel prosperous at the time, but the problem is, of course, inevitably all bubbles do burst. And One of the best definitions that I've heard is really that when you're inside of a bubble, it's like you're inhabiting a fiction, a fictional bubble. And there's a much bigger picture of reality out there. And if you're not paying attention to it, it'll sort of crash its way in. And so that's sort of the starting point of this book. But of course, I'm using a scientific lens with this book. And so I've had a chance to interview many different scientists over the years working as a science broadcaster. And I started realizing that scientists were able to see this world that I couldn't perceive. So, uh, whether it's the, the ability to image something like a supermassive black hole or the ability to image something like an atom. These are things that we know surround us and a reality that surrounds us, but that we can't see. And as I started speaking to many different scientists from different fields, they all had a different lens on the world. So it's almost like when you picture like a dragonfly's eye, right? The compound lens with the 28,000 uh, lenses on it. Uh, that's almost how this picture of the world starts to come together with all these scientific views put together. So
0: it kind of feels like the bubble has come to define. The 21st century. I mean, we have this this environmental bubble, which I guess is the the atmosphere. We have the financial bubble, the, the stock market bubble, as it's more uh, well known. The intellectual bubble, or the filter bubble, and this uh, this psychological bubble, which is your reality bubble. Why do you think the bubble is such a useful metaphor to describe this sort of state of mind or state of being we're in in the 21st century?
1: I think it's because we're increasingly atomized. We're increasingly feeling like we belong to these collectives where we're supported with our viewpoints, but at the same time, uh, we're you know inside of these little buffer zones, these little echo chambers that we subsist within. And sometimes you feel like your bubbles sort of intersect with other bubbles and bounce off of each other. And that's when you can see there's a little bit of friction in the world and how we're starting to see the world differently, especially when it comes to, say, political bubbles of the left and right.
0: Now, In the book, you you try and break us out of our reality bubble, but I I have to wonder, is that bubble useful? Is it shielding us against craziness of, of the reality of the world? Is the reality bubble actually a useful concept? Is it a useful place to be?
1: That depends. That depends. I think that, generally speaking, if you're inside of a bubble, um it's an unrealistic place to be. And so we feel safe inside of those bubbles. Of course, we like to feel like we're secure inside of our own knowledge, but it's the same thing as when people say, Is ignorance bliss? Right? I, I would not choose <laughs> to be ignorant if I had the choice. It's a very dangerous thing, and that's that's really why we find ourselves in the position we're in today. I mean. Um, When we look at, and this is one of the things that I've been mentioning in my talks, the the apocalypse essentially is an invisible beast. When you're looking at biodiversity loss, when you're looking at what's happening with climate threats, with the CO2 coming out of buildings and tailpipes, we simply can't see any of this. We can't see where our food comes from, our energy comes from, our waste goes, right? And because of this, we're fundamentally blind and we're entering a real catastrophic situation because we haven't been paying attention. So I think it's important to exit the bubble.
0: I mean, specifically to that, you start this wonderful re- revelation about where cameras are mm. and where cameras. On, it was a shower thought, wasn't
1: it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, just one of those things that kind of comes to you, and it's of course because I have many friends who are hackers and who work in the surveillance culture, not actually doing the surveying, but the counter sort of surveying. And I was noticing there are cameras everywhere, everywhere around us, and there's a whole chapter on surveillance in the book, except where our food comes from, where our energy comes from, and where our waste goes. And I thought. This is so weird because we're the most powerful species on earth, but we're also a species that has no idea how it survives. And, uh, that's another danger.
0: To some degree, do we deliberately fail to pay attention to so many aspects of reality?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that there's the biological blind spots that we can't see, which is the first part of the book. And then the second part of the book is the willful blind spots, right? And there's there's reasons why we've always wanted to stay away from certain things. You know, in the chapter on food, I mentioned the work of the scientists who call themselves disgustologists, right? Because they actually study disgust. Why do we want to keep factory farms far away out in the further boroughs? Well, it's because of death, disease, rot, screaming bodies. Yeah. You know, you don't want to see any of that stuff, right? But not seeing it becomes, again, really critical in the societies that we're living in now. I mean, we're living in the midst of a pandemic as we're filming this, right? We're keeping, and that's because of a lot of the situations that we've crammed so much of our life into, you know, like disease and decay. Um, all these things are things that we need to pay attention to. If we're not paying attention, then it becomes very dangerous. When we talk about factory farms, it's things like antibiotic resistance, right? Like that's something that's very scary. And in China, of course, with the wildlife markets, which is why today we have coronavirus.
0: I mean, in the book, you reveal, you mentioned the word blind spot. You reveal these blind spots, and there's three key blind spots that we have, isn't there?
1: Yes, we have uh, basically what surrounds us, we're blind to, what sustains us. And uh, then, what controls us is is the sort of way in which I've structured it. Or another way to put it is sort of these biological blind spots, the societal blind spots, and then spreading wider are civilizational or intergenerational blind spots. These are blind spots that are passed down from generation to generation.
0: Well, let's talk about some of those biological blind spots because that opens this uh, opens this book and it it looks at one of the blind spots that all of us have, and it's with our own perceptual apparatus. It's a blind spot. Literally in our eye.
1: That's right, exactly. Where your optic nerve jacks into the back of your brain is a place where you can't see. So, I think I say in the book, it's something like nine full moons could fit in the sky from that area that you're blind to. And there's an illustration in the book that lets you test it out for yourself. Uh, you can cover one eye and you stare at a dot, and you'll see it suddenly disappear from plain sight.
0: You look at blind spots throughout the book, and and one of the things that you look at is how these blind spots are exploited. I mean, in what way? Have our blind spots been exploited? And in what way does that control the way in which we view and see reality?
1: There's one instance that I talk about in the book in terms of our biological blind spots, which kind of um, illustrates why uh, it's important to be able to see them. And I talk about a surfer named Mike Sturtevant. And Mike is a surfer uh, who lives in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. And all around him, the beach was crystal, you know, crystal blue waters, aquamarine waters, white sands. But then one day he started coughing up blood and he started getting sores on his skin, blurry vision. And this was happening to a lot of people on the beach as well. And, you know, everybody was confused by it. Why are these beachgoers getting so sick? And one night he had a UV lamp that he would carry around with him to look for petrol leaks in the back of his boat. And he shone it on the beach and the beach was glowing this bright orange color. So he and his friend, who is a geologist, they took in samples. They took in about 71 samples and got them tested. And what they discovered was on the beach was Corexit dispersant, which had come down 200 kilometers away from the BP oil spill and floated down with the waters. And the mixture of Corexit with the oil actually made it 52 times more toxic. But when you're actually going and looking at the cleanliness of a beach, a beach is considered clean if there's no oil on it, if you can't see any oil. And of course, nobody could see any oil. Nobody could see any dispersant. He had to be able to see it in a completely different way, and he saw it through UV.
0: I mean, that's a terrible case, but in in so many cases, isn't human progress really reliant on making uh, certain processes invisible? You quote uh, Alfred North Whitehead in the book, and you say, look, civilization uh, civilization advances by extending the number of important operations we can perform without thinking about them. So in some cases, is that uh, process of making things invisible very important? for our human being I
1: fundamentally I put that quote in because I disagreed with him <laughs> right like because I actually said that was the thing you know all our fundamental processes our life support system our food and our energy and our waste systems uh, industrialized to human scale are things that we don't see and that is the problem
0: if we were to look more specifically at reality in general have we been conditioned to perceive a certain type of world or a certain to have a certain relationship with the world
1: well, I think that, um, there's no doubt that we're conditioned in certain ways. Uh, if you look at basically nine to five clock time, the way in which we, uh, We sort of scurry around all the commuters without even stopping to think how we became conditioned to operate in such a way. And it was a process that took a few hundred years. You know, it took all those school bells. It took all those factory bells. It took all that training for us to start working that way. It took the Haymarket riots. It's, you know, it wasn't a natural system for any of us. And even today, when you look at the capitalist system, right? When I was growing up, 7 Eleven, was op- it was called 7 Eleven because it was open from 7 a.m. till 11 p.m. at night. It wasn't a 24 hour store. And it was only in the 80s, really, that capitalism crept into the nighttime and we started this full night cycle as well. And that's one of the things that I've been thinking about lately, especially when we start thinking about things like climate change, is how wonderful it would be if we were able to take back the night in that sense, right? Not only would we be helping the birds and uh, all the insects in our own circadian rhythms, but I was struck by this because I I was um, I came across a story, not a story actually a fact um, of what happened in the 1990s in Los Angeles when they had a blackout there. They had rolling blackouts or a blackout, full blackout in the 90s, and everybody started calling the Griffiths Observatory, and they didn't know what was going on. All these people were calling up, and uh, it's because they'd never seen the Milky Way. Right? Like in Los Angeles, it's a city of lights. They have the lights on all the time. And you know, to see all these baffled people who hadn't even seen the universe, and of course, seeing the universe gives you the sense of scale. So I think even returning the night to people, returning that rhythm, the more natural rhythm that every other species along with us has, a, would it really be helpful when it comes to the climate crisis in terms of saving some energy for uh, another 12 hours in the evening, would be beneficial to a lot of creatures and insects and might be beneficial to us as well.
0: It's always when I watch these ancient history documentaries and I see how people are um, creating pyramids or structures aligned with the stars. It always feels so alien to us today in the 21st century. But then you realize when you go to Egypt where there's no artificial light and you look up, the stars are so bright. It makes obvious sense that that's how you would plan out an entire city.
1: Totally, yeah. Um... Mount Sinai is probably the only mountain I've ever climbed twice. It's the only mountain I plan on ever really climbing again. And I had the same truly starstruck, I guess that's where the word comes from, right? Where it's this numinous landscape up there um, of many different landscapes, really. And um, it's bewildering, yeah. And I think that that's something. That sense of scale, of course, is something that um, I don't know makes us feel small, reminds us of where we fit into the larger scheme of things, instead of this very human-centric, dominant, you know, human exceptionalism. This whole worldview that we've come to these days.
0: And we've jumped straight to space and time. So why not? Why um, not go? Why, there? Not, why, not talk, <laughs> why not go there? I mean, if we were to first. Uh, Begin with a big philosophical question, I suppose. I mean, what is time? Is it a dimension? Is it a perception? I mean, you try and tackle some of this in the book.
1: Yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't know what time is. I mean, I've been thinking about time for 20 years, and I'm no closer. Just like most people who actually fundamentally are interested in time. Carlo Rovelli is a great author who gets into the science of time in a wonderful way. There are anthropologists that I read uh, whose work I, I was really intrigued by. Um, who look at time in many different societies and how people operate in different temporal ways. Of course, there's the psychology of time. So I don't know if time exists, but I do know how it came to be structured historically. So my book is more about how how scientists and the scientific lens shifted time, and how we actually broke the cycle of time. Right? How our own um, sort of nine to five clockwork and our own tempo and our own human beat of industrialization and capitalism and production has now changed the world around us. We're filming today in London in springtime, early February, and there are cherry blossoms everywhere. It's not normal.
0: I mean, you say in the book that there's something weird happening. Is our atomic clocks get more? A more accurate, uh, natural something very weird going on, and I wonder if you could explain what that is.
1: Well, I think you know just what I was saying there is the fact that you know the human beat of time is um, is using all the natural resources. Right, obviously this is nature that we're using up. And uh, in that mass production process, and all the fuels and all the CO2 that is required to make and ship and create all these objects and goods that we buy and throw and buy and buy and throw away constantly, that is changing fundamentally um, our our environment around us. Right? The heat is changing. Um, all all, the, and that's having an effect, for example, on the flowering times. So yeah, it's making a big impact in terms of phenology, which is really the study of the timing of uh, of nature and its cycles.
0: I mean, what was so interesting about the way in which you tackled time is that you looked at it as this civilizational blind spot. And I think the best way to summarize sort of where you were going within that section of the book is, is this phrase: "Time is money." Time became this operating system through which we understand reality, and we create these other systems, such as capitalism, or or exchange our time for uh, for money. And I, I just wonder how has this simple concept, time is money, come to define the entirety of Western civilization?
1: That's a huge question, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> that is a massive question. Um, and I think I do have a quote in there for that very first moment when when this system of exchange began, and when we started thinking that if we weren't working, that we were actually fundamentally missing out and misusing our time, right? And that's a big problem because what we've been doing is we demonize, We demonize the poor and we criminalize, we make it a form of laziness if you're not always at uh, your highest perfunctory level. And if you look at even societies, this isn't what I talk about in particular in the book, but the elderly who have long been revered as the wise in, in human society are now rendered useless because they are no longer functioning economic units within our society. Again, and I'm sorry to quote another book and I can't remember the title of this book, which shames me, but I'll try and remember for you if you want to add it into any of the notes. But I thought it was really quite interesting. This female author was writing about how in the past our structure was society, our society was structured around gods and, uh, you know, well, basically around religion, and then science came along and everything, our whole worldview, became very mechanistic. And now, today, we see everything as, as widgets. We tend to sort of commodify everything into units, into how it fits into our economic story and narrative of the way the world works. But that's just another narrative. So I like the way she spins those as, as a big temporal reality bubbles that we've existed in. And exchange of course has always been critical in human society it's been fundamental because we've needed different goods and resources from different places but we've never seen it operating the way it does today and of course as you know today with high frequency traders you know it's operating these little digital handshakes are taking place at the speed of light so um it's at hyperspeed now so it's not even time as money it's almost you know money as light
0: We've accepted uh, the Chronos time, the, the, the idea that, oh, sorry, Kairos time, chronological time has reality. But is there something useful in retrieving a more human time, a more circadian rhythm to to have a biological clock that depends on the moon, for example? Is there something we're losing by relying purely on the the mechanical clock?
1: Freedom. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just freedom. I think that having our you know, I talk about the riots uh in India when when uh the institution of time began to take place there. And they everybody we'd all had local time for many periods of, of time. Uh but if you think about when people go away on holiday, what they love the most is that that sense that time has shifted, that time has slowed down, that time is your own, that you don't have to, you know, walk to the beat of that that constant atomic clock drum, you know. Um so, freedom, I think, is the number one thing that we regain. And of course, it wasn't particularly easy to meet in the past, right? You'd have to meet at dawn. Um, but I, I grew up in an era when people would have to arrange before cell phones, you know, to meet at a certain place at a certain time. It's always Doable.
0: I, I have an artist friend who he refuses to carry a mobile phone because everybody is always on time for his meetings. So no one can call ahead or text ahead right, and say right, I'm right. going to be late. I'm going to be late. They're always there. They show at up at the right. time they're supposed to be. So it works out even but, better for him. They show up. But we jump straight into time. But I want to jump back to the beginning of the book where you talk about these biological blind spots because at the end of the day, it's so obvious that throughout the book, your science nerdiness is showing. Thank you. <laughs> In what way have you found that scientists have a fundamentally different view of this thing called reality?
1: When you're looking at them, they're all looking at a piece of the puzzle, right? Whether you're looking at geologists who are looking at long scale time and you know the history of where we came from, or marine biologists or oceanographers or microbiologists, they're all looking at an important piece of the puzzle, right? How we've come to exist. Uh, how we survive, you know water is absolutely critical, just as uh, microbes are, and they all tell a very big story about our existence, but the fields of view are so fundamentally different and and scientists are siloed. You know what I mean if you're in the geology department, you're nowhere near the microbiologists for the most part, and you're looking at completely different areas and aspects. But working as a science broadcaster, I had a chance to interview them across the spectrum. So speaking to so many different scientists, I was realizing that they, were all, they all had a slightly different lens on the world. And uh, putting them together was really fascinating.
0: I mean, how does that, that scientific perspective on the world, how does that work to challenge Everything we know about reality. How have scientists, um, historically always seem to question reality? I know you focus in, in the book, the, the discovery of the electromagnetic spectrum is the starting off point for us realizing that in actual fact, what we can see is not actually everything. And constantly scientists are beginning to surprise us over and over again with now with quantum mechanics, yeah. which is a, a new way of seeing, uh, reality. So how do th- how do they Continue to challenge our understanding.
1: Well, I love scientists because I see them as reality testers. They're always testing things that are invisible, you know, whether it's Newton and looking at gravity, whether it's uh, Al- Albert Einstein looking at time and space, right? We rely on these things so fundamentally. You wouldn't have GPS or satellites functioning if you didn't have the special theory of relativity or the general theory of relativity. So they're playing in these invisible realms. Van Leeuwenhoek, who I start the story off with, who ground down the microscope to the point where he could see little bacteria swimming, you know, millions and billions of these creatures swimming in our mouth. He looked at his own ejaculate and discovered sperm. You know what I mean? And nobody had seen these things. They thought he was completely mad. They thought he was a charlatan that he was making all this stuff up. And he was looking at the invisible you know so these are these people who can go back into these reaches of the world and, and show us that there is something beyond the reality that we perceive today but the great thing about science and i'm not a technological determinist at all i don't think science has all the solutions because science is also often wrong that's the other wonderful thing about it it's self correcting and when it's wrong it actually better than most people admits it <laughs> you know what i mean
0: when you look at these biological blind spots you look at the the technological lenses i guess and how they've manipulated and changed the way in which we view perceive and i guess understand reality and it feels like there's there's two pieces of technology that are core of that the telescope and the microscope two very different forms of lenses and i just wonder how have they continue to transform the way in which we see reality
1: yeah, um, I think I've got that quote by Victor Hugo, right, which has the grander view. And um, as you know, in the book, I refer to us as microscopic giants, right? Larger than 95% of all species that are animal species that are smaller than a human thumb. But at the same time, for anybody who's flown in an airplane, you know that we're absolutely tiny. And those reaches, you know, we're, we're, we exist In a human sized world, this is a dollhouse sized world that we've constructed a bar that fits us to human size. The chairs are human sized. And it makes us feel like everything in the world, everything in reality is human sized. So I love how jarring it is when these scientists kind of snap open all these other spheres. And keep in mind, of course, we're just at, you know, we know that it can go so much farther than what we can currently even see. You know, so I mean the Planck length, for example. We're nowhere near being able to see anything at 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 such a small level, but increasingly it seems like as we evolve, we keep opening these these windows further and further um, into worlds that that will continue to surprise and amaze us.
0: I mean, how do we deal personally as human beings with that surprising surprisement and that amazement when we realize that in actual fact the world isn't? human size when we suddenly have this this revelation that our experiences are telling us that oh this reality is human size but our technology is telling us something completely different. I mean how do we how do we deal with that juxtaposition?
1: I think really it's exactly what you talked about when you said you went to Egypt and you saw the stars, right? That is the sense of the numinous and that is a sense of scale and awe. And uh, that's what I really wanted to imbue this book with as well is that sense of wonder, you know, that we don't have everything all figured out, that it isn't this mechanistic universe that we have all the answers to. Sometimes we can just be surprised and sit back and just be witnesses at the glory and the splendor of it all.
0: Well, some things in the book do that and they make you feel like, wow, this is incredible, this is, this is wondrous. And then other things in the book
1: sucker punch, <laughs> sucker punch you <laughs> and
0: make you go, ooh, well, well, if you've followed really? me
1: on Twitter, you've known for a long time that's been my hello, look at some cute puppies and kittens. Pow! Uh, <laughs> you know what I
0: mean? <laughs> like? Well, it feels like that. And, then, and I think that when you focus on the, um, the stuff that is, is small, tiny, the, the, the teeming life that is happening around us, this invisible life that makes up the entirety of uh, human existence and, and life on Earth. And I just wonder how do we come to terms with the fact that we are teeming? With bacteria, we are not just these human-sized bodies. There's so much more going on intricately across our skin, across our faces, across our body, across every single surface that we yeah. we inhabit.
1: Well, I think it's humbling, isn't it? You know, um, I, I talk about that a little bit in the beginning of the book. I had that sense when I was sitting alone writing sometimes, and I would think, "Oh, I'm alone," and then I'd be like, "Shit, I'm completely not alone. Like I'm surrounded." By invisible creatures that I simply can't see, and I think it's it's important because they're the engineers of our planet. these are these are the little critters that are responsible for the oxygen that we breathe and for all so many different life cycles and systems, like the bacteria, you know i I do a talk, and it's so funny. Because I talk about dirt and earth and earth being, you know, perhaps one of the most soil being perhaps one of the most boring topics in the world. People are actually really quite enamored by it when you start realizing how much life, you know, is in just even a single teaspoon, um, of soil. And, uh, of course, then, I mean, as you know, in the, in the book, I talk about how scientists have come to see the bacterial diversity and, uh, and, uh, basically, all the life that is inside of the soil is through that underwear test, right? Do you remember that?
0: The cotton underwear. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Men's
1: underwear. You, if you put men's underwear into soil, um, you can get a sense of how how healthy the soil is. Because if you remove the underwear and it's basically threadbare and invisible, it means that uh, the bacteria have been having a magnificent feast.
0: Part of that not being able to see the very, very smallness part of our, our scale blindness, is what you call it in the book. And, and Part of scale blindness, part of that ability to be unaware of so much of reality is tied to this thing called human exceptionalism. Mm. Now, what is human exceptionalism and how does that fundamentally affect the way in which we understand and navigate reality?
1: That's a big question, but I think that that's one of um the most important things um in terms of our blind spots is that we have a tendency to see ourselves really as the center of the universe, don't we? Um and it was Galileo who fundamentally shifted that idea that it wasn't the sun revolving around us. I mean, that's how we we saw the entire universe as revolving around our species. But not only that, we see ourselves as separate from all of nature. You know, we live in these cities, these these habitat bubbles that kind of keep us separate from all the other 8.7 million other animal species. And then on top of that, there's another layer of exceptionalism, which is that we believe that we're better than all the other species on Earth as well. And those three ideas coupled together, I mean, those are critical and they're crucial because they came to sort of position the way we see ourselves as separate from nature and our need to dominate nature but fundamentally our need and our 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 belief that we have the right to own everything that surrounds us we have the right to own all the food energy time space everything fundamentally except our own waste
0: i mean in a funny sort of way ownership is really the key theme that runs throughout the book i'm this so glad you idea picked that up yeah that we are able to to have ownership over, over space, over time, over dominion of the, of the planet. and It's a very Judo-Christian w- idea that we have dominion over the plants and the animals, and all of it was created for, for us. us. <laughs> and yeah. I just wonder why are we so stuck in that world view of that lens of ownership
1: Mm-hmm. because we see everything as separate from us right and it's not just i mean that's the great thing in doing work with wwf especially in canada for the last 8 years um our work there is not just from a scientific lens we absolutely indigenous partnership is 50% of what we do because an indigenous lens doesn't see the world or the environment as separate it's sort of um you know it's it's not a human-centric point of view. Human beings are just one amongst many different species, and you have to be able to be living in simpatico. Otherwise, you you have a sense that you could topple it over and start destroying it. So I don't think that every um, you know I don't think that it's something fundamental to the way we see the world. It's just fundamental to the way we see the world now. That's why I believe it can be shifted.
0: One of the ways in which you're trying to shift uh, individuals into thinking about this this holistic environment where us and animals and the environment have something to, to really offer each other is by elevating the idea of animal intelligence. You look at other forms of, of different intelligence. And I wonder if we're more sympathetic to this idea of animal intelligence, what could we actually learn? Wow,
1: maybe some humanity. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, I think that's what we're always looking for. And I always find it baffling that when you're on the internet, that's what makes people happy. You know, so much of the internet is surrounded by viral pictures of dogs and cats and, and friendly animals and animals doing human funny things, you know, that if an alien were to take a look at that, they would be like, Oh gosh, this is such a strange species. Because on the one hand, they seem to have this remarkable fondness and admiration for their fellow species. But behind the scenes, of course, we're killing 60 billion of our domesticated animals while we're not looking. And I've noticed this on Twitter. I can tweet about animals and I'll watch, those, I'll watch that retweet button go frickin' bananas, yeah. you know? Thousands, sometimes tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of retweets. But if I tweet anything about animal rights, nothing. Crickets lose followers immediately, right? Because we don't like to see those sorts of things. We don't like to pay attention, understandably, to suffering, but that's what we need to start paying a little bit. We need to have that compassion again.
0: I mean, to some extent, is that, is that deliberate? Do we have a willful blindness to so many things? Are we willing to be blind to the reality bubble that we live in because there's some things we just don't want to know? Well, because it's painful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are things that bring us pain, and if it if it hurts our brains, um, brings us shame or guilt or any of those feelings, the easiest thing for us to do in a digital world where you know the problems are distalized is to turn it off. It's quick and easy response, right? just fill your fill your you know your feed with puppy dogs and ice cream and things will be a little bit okay but it's it's something that we need to pay better attention to because as you said you know when we when we do spend time with animals as eo wilson talks about you know the sense of biophilia we have a deep love for animals and nature you know it's just a shame that we've turned them into caricatures
0: it feels like throughout the book there's this subtle environmentalist message it's not preachy but there is. Every now <laughs> and then, you go, "Oh, I see what but you're really.
1: Yeah, maybe. Doing. Maybe you might. But I have to be honest. Like the book, the book took a year to write. But it took five years to think about because there was no way I was going to write an environmental book. I knew that I wouldn't read an environmental book and I didn't think anybody else would either. And so I was very thrilled when the new scientist compared it to the Matrix because I wanted it to be more like illusions and shifting perspective and seeing the world in a different way and seeing what controlled you rather than, you know, a finger wag because I don't think that that's particularly helpful or informative and I don't think it works. I don't think preaching works. I've tried it. The only place where preaching works is with preachers. Uh, they I mean, they're very effective. I mean
0: is that what you're is that what you're subtly trying to do with a book? Are you trying to subtly wake us up to the reality of a global crisis instead of shouting us or proclaiming that it's happening and it's all going to be terrible? Are you slowly unveiling the micro and the macro aspects of our world and our reality and our environment and revealing those to say, look, all this is weirdly sort of connected?
1: Yeah. Well, it's really... It's really providing the glasses so that people can see for themselves, right? I don't need to say you need to feel anyway when you can see for yourself. And I think that, um, you and perhaps some of your viewers will be familiar with the reference at the beginning of the book, which is They Live, the film that featured Rowdy Roddy Piper, <laughs> which was a bit of a cult film. And um, in it, he puts on these glasses and he starts seeing the terms obey, stay asleep, consume. And that's where, of course, that obey Andre the Giant thing comes from. Shepherd Fairy actually, um, you know, was inspired by this film. And I think many of us have this sense of unease as we're walking around the world. We know that um, this make believe world that we've constructed isn't the way things really operate, you know? And that's why we love children. Children can point it out to you like this. A child can look at a border between here and Mexico and be like, that's not real. (laughs) You just put up a fence, you know what I mean? There's not a single animal, the ants that will be walking through, the birds that will be flying overhead. This is just our bullshit notion that we came up with. So I love children for that because children can see through it, you know? The elderly—they've—they've got nothing to lose. They can see through it now too. So it's really, you know, our generation—the generation that's in power—that needs to kind of poke at the reality bubble. So
0: how do we poke? I mean, how do we poke at the reality bubble and not, as Galileo was, not get punished for that? How do we how do we poke at it and not get mocked for it? How do we how do we um, try to challenge some of the uh, dogmas that exist about how we have to live and act and be? In this reality bubble,
1: I think it's an issue of critical mass. You know, today when we see like Extinction Rebellion, for example, calling for 3.5 percent of people to see, to open their eyes, it's the same sort of thing. And we live in a time where we're communicating at the speed of light, so it's a very different world right now. Um, You know, in in olden times when you would need to have a paradigm shift, um, I can't remember which scientist uh, said it. I I think it was. I think it was Max Planck. I'm not sure. But basically, you had to wait till people died, Uh, until they dropped dead. Science advances one funeral at a time. Yeah. Until a new (laughs) idea could come to pass, right? Just wait for the oldies to go. We don't have time for that. So really, we're in a very different position. But thankfully, we're able to spread ideas very, very quickly. I just think we need to be using memes in a different way not just for jokes and in jokes and humor you know like these viral memes we need to start spreading ideas through them as well
0: is, is one way then to to be playful about it to be Playful about how we construct and understand reality. As I was reading the book, I kept thinking of Robert Anton Wilson. Oh,
1: really? And Robert <laughs> Anton
0: Wilson's approach to reality tunnels and and how he would approach dogmas with these things called catmas. And catmas were the ability to have multiple beliefs and test those multiple beliefs and never let anybody really know what you believe. Robert Anton Wilson famously said, um, I, "I don't believe in anything, but I have my suspicions." And he was yeah. always. Playful with reality. And I wonder how do we get permission to play with reality?
1: Mm, that's a, also a great question. I think that um, reality itself is so playful and mal- multifaceted once you're willing to accept that there is no such thing as one dominant worldview. And I hold science in the same light. Science isn't just one dominant worldview. There are many worldviews, and I think we need to embrace that, right? I think it's when we actually get stuck. We turn into zombies when we think that there is only one reality. And for example, when we started talking this one 9-to-5 economic reality that we all believe in, I think that once we start getting more playful With it. You know, for example, in different countries and cultures and different businesses right now, people saying, you know what, I don't need to work five days a week. I can work four days a week, or I can work 30 hours a week, or I can, you know what I mean? Once we realize that the boundaries are actually elastic, when we can play with them, that's when we have more freedom again.
0: I think boundaries already to a degree elastic. Are we seeing that elasticity not when it comes to society or the environment or biological blind spots, but in politics? Mm. You don't mention politics specifically (laughs) in the book, but the idea of post-truth politics Mm. is already making reality elastic. People have very different worldviews based on their political allegiances. Trump's idea of post-truth, where he dogmatically believes the reality that he is creating through language, is an example where we're becoming more comfortable with this idea. But I think that,
1: that there's a big difference between shaping opinion into fact, right? There are facts. I know for a fact that if I look with a proper microscope, I will be able to see the microbes and the bacteria inside of your mouth. You know what I mean? That's a fact. That's not an opinion. And so that's why I. That's why in this particular book, I didn't go, I didn't start talking about alternate realities or are we living inside of some great simulation? I didn't want to go into things that I simply couldn't prove. I wanted to show you things that I could actually show you with a lens. If you went and you bought the right, you know, UV lamp or if you bought a, you know, an x-ray machine or if you got a mass spectrometer, you would be able to see it with your own eyes.
0: I mean, the other thing you're trying to show us is the stuff that we really can't see with our own eyes, no matter what technology we use. And to some extent, that thing is the system, mm, whatever yeah. that system may be. And, and you have multiple ways of playing with this idea of these, these human systems that we create. But it seems no matter w- what way we approach these, these systems, it seems like they're threatening the planet. The human-made <laughs> systems are the things that are threatening the planet and we can see those systems going very very wrong yeah. and yet we choose to do utterly nothing about it so how do we dramatically course correct when we know the system that we're in is exploitative is causing damage to the environment and yet is not allowing us to to escape because we feel quite comfortable within our reality bubble
1: well i think that um You know, and and I'm going to quote Josh Tetrick here. He's the founder of Just Eggs, okay? And when we talk about the system, our life support system, and you know this from the book, basically our life support system is what's killing us right now, right? The way we survive is destroying the world. Um, But it's not all broken. Josh Tetrick argues that when it comes to the food system, it's half broken. And I like that idea, actually. I like it quite a lot because we have ways of let's say getting our food distributed uh stored frozen all these sorts of things that part of the system that network that allows us to feed ourselves functions actually incredibly well what he's looking at for example is the protein system right like you know up until now it's been these very horribly treated animals that are you know mass incarcerated and And slaughtered, right? And honestly, as you know, the slaughter is probably the kindest part of the entire process. But if you change that protein system, which we're starting to see now with pea protein, with clean meat, and you put it into this part of the quote unquote sausage factory, right? It'll still continue to work. So the inputs are what I think we need to begin to change. And we can do that. Uh, Jeremy Rifkin is another writer who talks about the different industrial revolutions that we've had over time. Um, he argues that we're in the midst now of the third industrial revolution and every one of these industrial revolution requires, um, three major inputs. So you need to have a source of energy. You would need to have a source of transportation and you have to have a source of communication. And we had that in England, whether it was rail using coal, using the telegraph. Uh, you have that in, uh, in the States when it's the car, or when it's, Oil and when it's the telephone. And now we are emerging into a new industrial revolution where we have renewables, where we have smart vehicles, and where we have the internet. So there is the potential for us to fix the system without completely smashing it to bits.
0: The problem with the word revolution is it's so <laughs> similar to the idea of paradigm shift where it's all about progress. It's all about, let's have another revolution, let's continue to grow uh, economically, Mm. let's continue to grow industrially. And it's getting away from what felt like the the crux of the book, which was this idea of cyclical
1: I love that you've read it and you've actually understood it so well. That's so great.
0: It feels like we set up these reality bubbles because we want to escape cycles. Because cycles don't make us feel comfortable, progress does. Mm. Because cycles, we have to deal with birth, we have to deal with death. And rebirth. Well, we think it stops there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Rebirth
1: yeah. is
0: the cycle. And yeah. You have this wonderful description of um, how we're made of star stuff. Yeah. And when you speed that up, Koinostarski-esque, yeah. you have a human being come together made of a multitude of cells. It exists as a human biological entity that is human-sized and we believe stops at the boundary of the skin. And then in death, it just dissolves and goes back out into star stuff. And it was such a beautiful metaphor of this, this cycle of a human being, as opposed to you're born and then you die and you better exploit the earth while you're here and make lots and lots of money because that's what we value within our reality bubble right now. So I wonder how do we escape this idea of linear narratives associated with progress? How do we return back to this idea of the cycle and feel comfortable and okay with the idea that things can be cyclical?
1: I think that, you know, human beings, we are a storytelling species. We have been for millennia, you know, and I think that it's just about the sorts of stories that we need to begin to share and tell each other again, you know? I, I think it's really as simple as that.
0: How then do we get away from the, the reality bubble that we're in, which is so destructive? Because <clears throat> it feels like these manufactured entities, i.e. these corporations, they construct this idea that we own, ownership being the key word, we own space. We own time, we own energy, we own everything apart from the waste. We won't talk yeah. about the waste. That's, that's in ours. that blind <laughs> spot. Let's, let's not yeah. discuss that. And it, it's led to this belief, or it's, it feels like it's led to this belief, that we own everything on this planet. We own life itself. itself. So, how do we challenge that notion? How do we uh, feel comfortable as a society with the idea that, again, we're no longer the center of the universe?
1: Well, you've brought us. Full cycle to the very beginning of our discussion, which is being able to poke at the bubble of human exceptionalism. It's that. It's exactly that. Once we don't see ourselves as exceptional anymore, once we see ourselves as part of the system, not having to build a separate system that's just for us, then uh, then maybe we have a better chance. But I'm still incredibly hopeful.
0: Well, one way is we cannot conform, and and you have a wonderful sort of. analysis of conformity because it's not as easy as it sounds. So You read the book and you go, oh, so the reality bubble, it's this William Gibson style consensual hallucination. It's something that we've all accepted. We all accept time. We all accept money is time. It allows us to live. It allows us to pay our taxes. It allows us to operate on this planet. But the only way to challenge the reality bubble is to not conform and that becomes really challenging not just on a societal level but on a biological level there's something actually at stake there's something we lose when we don't conform to the reality bubble
1: well it just takes courage it takes courage you know you you see people you know one of the biggest fears people have is speaking in public right? We're we're a species. We're primates. We're a group, community-oriented species. We like to fit in. We like to conform. You don't want to be the one that's running off after the lion in the savannah. You know what I mean? Not all the time anyway. We're actually, we've been protected by kind of being small groups and being small communities. So when people stand up, when they actually want to separate themselves from the rest of a pack, the rest of the group, there's a bit of a psychological cost to that. That's why people do fundamentally have this spe- fear of speaking, getting up in front of everybody, being a little bit different. But then at the same time, we live in a society that absolutely reveres difference, reveres individualism. But that individualism, as you've seen with anything trendy, very soon becomes co-opted and very soon becomes conformist in itself. So it, it is sort of um, freedom. It is really about freedom. and. As a first-time author, I think that that's been one of the most remarkable things: is um, when you write and you get a chance to speak about what you write, you're free. You know, it's it's so different from having a, a day job where you have to conform. You don't want to offend your bosses. You don't want to offend whatever your corporation represents. You don't have to be like retweets are not endorsements on Twitter. You can be like, I'm going to say whatever the fuck I want, <laughs> which is a beautiful thing. So freedom. And um, that ability to not conform, although it has its social costs, is a a truly powerful thing.
0: So, how do we individually stay open and stay receptive to anything that might break through the reality bubble? How do we accept it with open arms, as opposed to to uh, try to avoid it or try to deliberately ignore it?
1: Well, I think that. You know, and I'm actually going to quote Rob from massive attack because I think that he actually said that, you know, the people that we should look up today to today, they're the um heroes and artists, right? Like like the mavericks and the the sort of like rebels and the artists because these are the free people and the free thinkers. And I think that we're in trouble right now because we're quite often um. Bowing at the temple of celebrity. And celebrity is the ultimate temple of conformity, right? Whether it's conformity in terms of what you're listening to or the clothes that you're wearing or what you're thinking, that that's that's really where I think we've gone astray.
0: So how does our awareness of these hidden realities that you're describing affect us personally? Because it feels like it would eventually just drive us crazy, drive us paranoid, or even turn us into crazy conspiracy theorists if we go fully one way and try to challenge every aspect of reality.
1: Um, I don't think that there's a need to challenge every aspect of reality. There's basic things that I need to be able to assume that my feet are going to stick to the planet. I'm going to find my keys where I need to on the counter in the morning. There are things that we need to make assumptions about and not overbog our minds with so that we can get on with our day-to-day lives. But I think that what we need to start questioning today are are the bigger questions, the day to day sort of like zombie machinic aspects of our lives. If we don't start to question those basics, then we're gonna we're gonna be in a lot of trouble very very soon. You know, again, returning to where our food comes from, where our energy comes from, and where our waste goes. If we stop paying, you know, if we just act in a perfunctory ma- uh, fashion, if we If we act in the way that society expects us to be, we don't question the 9 to 5 of our daily existence. We don't question why some people are living in ghost mansions and some people are living in the size of coffins. Um, We don't question, for example, why we're throwing out so much food, which is the equivalent of all the oil that we drill in a year offshore in America. You know, if we don't begin to question those big things, then we're in a lot of trouble. I mean, it's one way. The small things, who cares? You know what I mean? Like, the small things, the fact that gravity exists, I don't think we need to constantly ask ourselves, is gravity happening? We don't need to use our brain power for that. But there are some bigger challenges that we have to face.
0: I mean, there's one way out of the reality bubble that we exist in everyday life immersing ourselves in other realities, finding other ways and, and viewpoints on the world through immersing ourselves in different locations, in different environments, in different uh, societies groups, is this possibly one way that we can begin to challenge the reality bubble?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, the people who do that best, the greatest artists of our time, have been those people who have challenged our perspectives and challenged our way of thinking. And that's a beautiful way. To pop our reality bubble.
0: I mean, the, the people who are most blessed to be able to have their reality bubbles popped are astronauts. And they have this wonderful thing called the observer effect that you cover in the, in, in the uh, sorry, the overview effect that you cover in the, the book. And I just wonder do we need to go to space to see reality differently? Or is there a way we can see the world with a fresh eye here on terra firma?
1: 100% we don't need to go to space. And I, uh, I was thinking for the longest time, oh, is this something where eventually when we have space travel and everybody can hop on an Elon Musk vehicle that will change the world? But it isn't because when I talked to Chris Hadfield, who was, you know, the commander of the ISS and a very famous Canadian astronaut, He told me most of the astronauts don't have this overview effect. Most of them don't have this profound shift that takes place just because they saw the Earth from space. In fact, you could probably do that with a VR headset. The truth is, learning to see with new eyes is something that can take place right here on the planet, right on the ground, right on terra firma. We don't have to go to outer space to see it.
0: Is there something very specific about this moment in time. You say in the book, our chances of being here as human beings in this moment right now are pretty much unfathomable. But we are here, and it feels like we're at the dawn of this thing, which is, feels like an apocalypse in many ways. And The question I have is, what do we do now, collectively?
1: Yeah. I think one of the things is I talk about what the apocalypse is etymologically in the book. And the apocalypse truly is not as scary as you think it is when you understand the Greek meaning. And The original intended meaning is to lift the veil and to remove our illusions and to begin to see in a new way.
0: So, I guess, how do the readers of this book become visionaries in the true sense of the word? Visionary is an overused word, but the idea that you can now see what was previously invisible, how do you truly become a visionary?
1: You have to have courage.
0: Thank you to Zaya for changing our perception of reality by revealing our collective blind spots. You can find out more by purchasing her new book, The Reality Bubble, How Science Reveals the Hidden Truths That Shape Our World, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, at futurespodcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to The Futures Podcast.